Hey, 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 I'm Michelle. And I'm Greta. We are girlfriends who have always been seekers. We love learning, sharing, and most of all, we love having those soul-to-soul moments with our girlfriends. Our podcast is about spiritual connection and sisterhood. You are not alone. So grab your glass, get comfy, and join us as we make some noise, light up the room, and get get into it. Oh my gosh, so excited today. We have a dear friend, Kim Curtis, that's here to talk to us about some really cool things that she's doing. But I wanted to give you a little background first. So I love how I met Kim. My husband actually had invited me to go to a Christian church. The very first people he introduced me to were Kim and her husband. And this chick comes out and she's got tattoos. And I don't even remember what you were wearing, but it was a little bit edgy. I was like, okay, I might be able to do this. And I will tell you, shortly after we met, we went out, we had some drinks, we played some cards. We were doing all these fun things together. And then Eddie approached me and said, we're going to do a Bible study group. And Kim and Daniel are part of this. And because you guys were part of that, that was the only reason why I was like, I'm in. I'm totally down for this because you guys were so welcoming and loving. But there was that edgy part of who you are. There was this attraction that you and Daniel brought with you that was like, oh, my gosh, whatever they're doing, this seems so fun and awesome. I want to be part of that, too. And it completely shifted my own judgments and stigmas around what I thought Christianity was all about. So with that said, I just felt it was important to kind of share a little bit of that history um, because you've been on a major spiritual journey. And actually, you and I, when we first met, we went out, we drank, we had some partying times together. And now... You've actually been sober for a period of time. And I want to I want to get into that. I want to get into the work that you're doing now. It's so funny because whenever Greta and I have these talks, the people that we bring in, there's just so much that it's almost hard sometimes to even figure out where to start. But I think because recently you threw out there on social media how proud of yourself you were for this sober journey you've been on. Let's just start from that spot. Oh, okay. <laughs> Starting Get in the tough spot. Okay. All right. <laughs> right there. <laughs> well, I'm 13 months sober, which is wow, crazy and not easy. And I think sometimes it looks easy because I'm at events and always out where people are drinking because you're networking and you're doing your thing. So people think that this is easy. It is an everyday conversation. In fact, just the other day, I said to myself, I wonder, actually, there was no wondering. It was very concrete. And then I went into wondering after, but it was very much of when I graduate with my doctorate in 2025, I think I'm going to start drinking because I only stopped drinking so that I could get this doctorate. And then it was a whole internal dialogue of, well, you actually stopped drinking because your brain was cloggy and you would never have been able to get the doctorate if you were still drinking. But you forget so quickly how much of your life is stolen when you drink, as in I did. I'm not a person that has ever been able to do 
anything part way in my life, I'm either 100% in or I'm 100% out. So I'm not a moderator. Other people can moderate. But that took a long time to accept that I'm not that person. I'm not the person that can go and network and then two hours later when the event is over, be done. I was the person that ended the party, the last to leave, and continued to bring the party to the next location. (laughs) Keep it going. Keep it going. Not a great way to live as many days a week as I was doing. So for me, the only only way to stop that cycle was to stop drinking and to gain some control over it. Wow. Yeah. I think this is a big topic for women, especially because I know, Kim, when we were talking a little bit, we, you know, we spoke about we're in our 40s and, you know, hormones are changing. And the way alcohol, I think, also affects us as females, it's a little bit different. And I don't want to just always compare us to men, but I'm saying there is a shift that happens as a woman being in her 40s and what alcohol does to our body. So we had talked a little bit about like forgetting things, you know, like maybe we're out drinking and we don't even remember the conversations we had the night before. Those are scary moments. And it feels like we're only four, you know, in the 40s. I mean, I know I'm closer to 50 than both of you, but it's still there's I felt that shift coming on. And I'm just wondering, can you speak to that a little bit about just like maybe those transitions or things that you felt that were like, wait, this is a little different yeah. than maybe being in your 30s or, you know, younger. Yeah. And I agree. Part of that was just aging and the body doing different things and metabolizing differently. But then there's also this impact of having a trauma that happened within my family, which shifted the what happened when Kim drank and how I showed the world, right? You have to, we have to kind of put our traumas to the side in order to go to work and take care of your family and to show up. And that kind of goes to the back. And you think that you've moved through your trauma history, or you've kind of accepted what has happened. And then when I would drink, that all would come to the surface. So then I would black out and people would get to see a side that I had been trying to hide. But I would have no memory of that when I would come to (laughs) the next day. And they would know my trauma, which made me feel very, very exposed. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, I would know their trauma, supposedly, (laughs) but I would have no recollection of their deep, deep wounds that they had shared with me. And that is not okay (laughs) as a human or as a therapist to not remember that you helped kind of hold somebody's really intense moments in their life in a moment. And it's possible that they didn't remember that either, but you don't know to even ask. So it was just very disheartening for me as as time was going on. And I was just really embarrassed for myself and for those people that I was around and how I was being presented. And I'm running a nonprofit. I can't be behaving in that sort of way. Would you call that trauma bonding? Is that sort of the definition of it? But I, I would think I was trauma bonding if I could remember if it. If you could remember it. Yes. Mm. So it's possible that they thought we were trauma bonding mm. mm-hmm. if they even remembered it. So we would have, you know, there there would be times where Daniel would tell me, oh, they told you like the deepest story and it, you guys cried together. And I'm like, what? <laughs> No memory. Can you tell me a little bit about what, see if that triggers anything? Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's a scary place to be actually for a number of reasons. But I think it's also fascinating because you are a therapist 
I mean, I guess when you're not remembering, you're just not remembering. So at that moment in time, it doesn't matter. But then later, the part where we replay and or we find out bits and pieces of information and how do we deal with that at that time, which is almost creating even more trauma for ourselves. You know what I mean? Like we had our big traumas and then we're connecting with people that we're not remembering, but on those traumas. And now we're traumatized by that experience. Well, and having happened. anxiety. Yes. Anxiety. Anxiety. Yes. Oh my. We've all been there. Right. What did I say? What did I do? Did I overshare? Yes. It's the worst. That Sunday morning when you wake up. Yeah. And you're just Mm. like, "Mm." what was that term? What'd you say? The boozy blues. The boozy Mm -hmm. blues. (laughs) Yeah. I think they go hand in hand. They really do. Yeah. Whoa. Okay. So this is big. And I think there's this time in our lives around, especially the holidays and then coming into New Year's where everybody starts to self-reflect. You know, like we have those moments throughout the year, but always around that time is when we go a little bit deeper, right? And we start thinking, are we going to do sober January? You know, what What are we going to do about this? And so I would also imagine there are people thinking, well, if this was your story and this is what was happening, how did you even stop? Did you just wake up and go, okay, I'm just not going to drink. And I know you said it's a daily conversation with yourself, but tell us more about that. Yeah. I, my daughter got married in September last year and I got to see a side picture of myself in a phenomenal dress, photo straight on, looking cute, side profile, looking real bloated. And then my face was kind of Uh, Yeah, it wasn't cute. There wasn't like the really good glow. I just didn't look healthy. And I said, well, 40 is really taking a toll. (laughs) (laughs) This damn age thing. (laughs) Not really feeling this. Let's see what happens if I did Sober October. And I found a bunch of Sober Sober Curious. That's where I was at, Sober Curious TikToks. And I would watch them every day through October. And it was just kind of a space where I would find individuals that were kind of dealing with the same sort of struggles, but also they were on the other side of it. And or they would talk about what your body was going through today as you're on your 13th day or something like that. And I love information about how my body's changing and reacting. And it took about two weeks before I could even go into REM sleep, which we need desperately. And then two weeks was when I started to actually sleep through the night and didn't have the 2 a.m. wake up from when your liver is metabolizing. (laughs) Yeah. Sleeping all the way through was an amazing moment to have that clarity of what's going on in decision making. I didn't have the anxiety in my body. I didn't feel so negative and depressed. I didn't have that voice going through my head about the choices that I had made the night before and just the negative self-talk that was happening. And so by the end of October, I was like, I think I think I'm going to just try going till November. And that was when we were going to Cabo. So I said, if you can do Cabo, then, then we've got a we've got a handle on this. So we pushed into going to Cabo for the week. It was the first time Daniel and I have gone to Cabo every year since we were about our third year. So probably 15 years. That was the first sunrise I had ever seen because I was usually waking up from a good tequila night. Sunrise in Cabo was amazing. And my sister-in-law actually messaged me, hey, I've never seen a sunrise photo from you. 
Oh, you must be doing pretty good down there. And I said, great to have that support. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I was like, wow. thank you for acknowledging that. So I was up and I was walking while no one else that we were with was doing that, which kind of re- reinforced for me that I was making a change that was on the right path. And so I was able to do Cabo and watch people not do Cabo. And well, yeah. I was. <laughs> so what were you doing while everybody else was doing Cabo and having their shots and, do, you know, and yes. partying it up? Like, what was Kim doing? I was still there. And, okay. and, and I'm like, I'm not going to not be in the spaces. But what I was dealing was was learning how to be in those environments because they're crazy overstimulating. And what I noticed about myself is that when I was drinking, I could tunnel vision and I could be in that space and I wouldn't know, you know, it was white noise behind me and it was all about the moment and who I was with. And then sober Kim might have a little ADD. (laughs) And I was like, this is a lot. The boom of the music, the crowds of the people. Have you seen that person over there? And I was mentally exhausted. So I would still wake up almost with a hangover from the noise that I was in in that space. I also think that I was drinking so much club soda that I was losing sodium (laughs) from my body. So I was like, what? It feels like a phantom hangover. And then I was like, we need to research as to what this is and how we're going to be in these spaces and work through your mental health around this. Because really my first drink was when I was 13. So I have not had, other than when I was pregnant, these moments of being in these environments you know, sober. So I had to sober really and how to do it. Raw and everything's exposed. There's no protective shield that alcohol kind yeah. of gives you. And also as you were telling the story about Cabo, it got me thinking how other people reacted to, I wanted to know like how they reacted to you saying, I'm not going to drink in Cabo because I think, unfortunately, as your friend, I'd probably be like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? You're not going to drink with us in Cabo. Yeah, like, exactly. come on, bitch, we're all doing this together. <laughs> that is exactly the response. That'd be really hard to yep. stand your ground. Yeah, but my not drinking does not mean that you can't drink. And that no. was the thing is people wanted me to reinforce that yes. they could drink. And I was like this person in their face, kind of that negative mm-hmm. space for them. And I was overcompensating. It turned out that I am definitely an alcohol pusher as I was trying to normalize it for people. I'm like, it's 10 a.m., bitch. Why aren't you drinking? <laughs> and they're like, whoa. And I'm like, you're just going to have one shot? you know? And they're like, OK, OK. I mean, I mean, on the flip side, you could be super judgy. And what do you do? That's yeah. probably, you know, the best bet in that situation. What are you going to do? That they're sloshed out. Yeah. And they can look at me and blame me for it. <laughs> Wouldn't have done this if it wasn't for you. And I'm like, Ugh. You're responsible for your own choices. <laughs> right. You're grown. Yeah. So. Wow. But at the end of the day, we all don't really want to see that, myself included, that alcohol is a toxin. It is poison. And it's been so normalized. And I find myself watching those sober curious videos too. And like thinking, what would that be like? And, you know, I'm just at that little starting phase. I don't know if I'll ever go all the way. But even when I think about it, I'm like, I'm not going to drink at all this week. And then something comes up and it's social. And you got people kind of pushing it. Well, you're not going to get anything. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's just, it's crazy how when you even think you're going to try to not, how in your face it becomes. And you realize it is so ingrained in our society. It is a very difficult thing that you've been able to accomplish 
Like, I just commend you for it. Thank you. Thank you. One of the tips that my sister-in-law, who is sober, and she's been through the family trauma with me, and really, I think it probably was closer for her than it was for me, but still hit us all. So she's been sober, and she told me, you know, it's about the vessel. When you go places and, and you're at an event and everyone has a wine glass, your beverage should be in a wine glass, not in a water bottle. You can't hold a water bottle while everybody's holding that. You know, if they're having beer, you need a pint glass, not a solo cup. And so that's how I've kind of functioned is I'll bring the drink with me, but I will put it in the same vessel as everyone else. And sometimes that red wine looks really good. So I'm going to need you to put some cranberry juice on top of my club soda. And I'm just going to kind of grip this bad boy for the whole night. And that's the only way that I can say that I have been able to do it. I've tried it with the plastic water bottle. It's not the same feeling. No, it's not elevated. No. No. And I think that's a super important point because when people do go to events, there is that feeling of I'm missing out. And I know for me specifically is that glass does make a huge difference. I just, it's like a ritual. It's like, oh, I've got this. It's my prop. This is how I make my way around. I'm sipping. There's this feeling that, yeah, you are participating. You are included in everything that's going on. But in the mind, it's that it's, this is so mental. And I love that you're a therapist because even the research that you did with understanding what's happening with the body and all of that, there's something mentally that's happening with you that is able to allow you to go into that space and shift, you know, and not succumb into all of that. And I think those are the parts where people get, I would say it's really hard where they think I just can't participate at all. If I'm Mm -hmm. going to be sober, I just can't show up. These are such great tips to go, no, you can, but try it with this. See what happens. I mean, Greta just took a sip of tea a second ago. If I put that tea, though, in, you know, a totally different kind of cup, that is going to change the experience for Well, I was just going to say you brought up the word ritual. And as I was sipping the tea, I thought about how much I adore my coffee in the morning. And and it really, I, I prefer coffee over anything else, but really any kind of hot liquid and the steam coming up your face. And it is such a ritual. And we do that with alcohol too. And my sister-in-law was great one time. It's It really isn't even about so much what's in the glass. And sometimes even when I am drinking, wine tasting, whatever it may be, she had me put water in my wine glass. And then it got me to drink water in between the wine tastings or whatever. And I realized, gosh, I was just thirsty. I didn't even want the wine. Right. <laughs> And I wouldn't have drank the water out of the plastic cup, the Dixie cup they had at the winery. But for some reason in that wine glass, I was <laughs> sucking that water down. <laughs> yes. And that's, oh, what, I, yes. that's, what, I, that's yes. what you're speaking about. That's what I'm validating is that there is something on that level that just changes the whole experience. So I love that, you know, how creative you even got where it's like, oh, well, if it's the red wine, give me the cranberry juice. Like, yeah. Whatever we can do to kind of psych ourselves out and the and the water in between. I mean, even if you're not choosing to go completely sober, I think there's a lot you can even take from this conversation about how cool. you can, yeah, mm-hmm. how you can change, you know, things up a little bit. So I love that you're sharing all that. Thank you. And I will say, I feel like it's gotten, for me personally, more out of hand as I've gotten older. I think when I was younger, I would hear my mom's voice in my head going, you better mix in a water. You you know, you've had two drinks, got to have a water and then you can drink another drink. And as I've gotten older, it's kind of like those things have just gone out the window. And 
Yeah, the hangovers are brutal in your 40s. They're not, I can have like three glasses of wine and feel horrible the next day. And it'll, yes. it'll, and not actually like sick, but just drained and tired. And I don't get anything done. Mm-hmm. And but that's also, a yucky feeling. The extra water makes you pee more. And I think as we get older, there's also that issue that we can't dismiss is that, <laughs> okay, the more liquids I'm consuming, the more I have to run to the bathroom. And that's a like legit concern. Absolutely. <laughs> And the more calories and sugar. So I'm yeah. going to opt out of maybe eating something so that I can oh, yeah. it because I have a body t- image that I'm trying to keep up. Oh, I was doing, you know, don't eat your carbs, drink them. <laughs> oh, yeah. One or the other. Oh, that's never good. Empty not stomach good and alcohol. Poison. No, <laughs> never makes good. makes sense. <laughs> in, in the moment. Of, yeah. In the moment. <laughs> <laughs> and with a little, you know, alcohol influence, it sounds even better. It's like, oh, oh yeah, of course that makes sense. Why See, would I question that? I would do I would do the other, which was like the late night, you know, Taco Bell or whatever. And then you wake up feeling like you have a brick in your stomach the next day. Yes. Uh, See, and that's the thing. All these things lead to this and this and this. It's like, okay, the extra alcohol leads to the more eating, leads to the lack of sleep, leads to the feeling like shit the next day, leads to the I can't go to class or I can't watch the sunset or whatever the hell is going on. And I think that's when, you know, when those things really surface, we have to really do an inventory and go, what the fuck am I doing? What is it? You know, what are my goals? And I don't know. That's the hard part. I think it's so easy sometimes to fall into those crazy cycles, you know. Well, and it's asking that question, which I think you did, which is, does the pleasure of having this alcohol outweigh the the next day and the consequences of that? And at some point you just said, no, it doesn't. And I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I would lose a whole weekend day. You only get Mm -hmm. two. Yeah, I know. know? Which is. And one would be spent only remembering part of it. And then the other was on the couch feeling just miserable. And then the rest of the week is trying to make up for that lost day of we didn't go grocery shopping. So now we're going to eat fast food or Mm -hmm. or pick up, you know, something or go out to eat. And then we don't have any clothes to wear or, you know, just like things that rolls into the week, the rest of the week and how we were going to function. And so it it was time. It was time for me to take control and take that life back. It is interesting how we, in situations like I just got back from a girl's trip in Sedona, which sounds very, it was very healing and therapeutic. And we did do healthy things like hiking, but there was a lot of alcohol consumed. I'm not going to lie. And it's like, we just equate it with a good time and fun. And if you're not getting up and having that Bloody Mary or mimosa, it's like, you're not able to enjoy the girl's trip. Or if you're not pouring that glass of red wine as the sun's going down, we just equate it with that. And it's kind of like a programming. And I feel like what you're saying is we can reprogram that. Yeah, I think we can. But it is, I also want to acknowledge, like most drinks, if I get a mocktail, the first thing out of my mouth after that first sip is something's missing. And Um, then they remind me, oh, it's that alcohol you didn't get in it. (laughs) Right. So orange juice isn't delicious. No. (laughs) The champagne or the vodka or whatever. Right. By itself. I don't really understand why anyone drinks it. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Smoothies took a minute, too, because I'm like, "Uh, it's just a lot of fruit. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It needs to be cut with something. So it takes like you're retraining 
your body, your taste buds, everything for that balance that drinks have within them as well of what you're accustomed to. So learning how to order a sober mojito, that's a whole game. Like some days it tastes like shit because they don't know how to balance it for me. And then other times like, yes, I can I can do this in this space. Thank you so much for knowing how to make a mocktail. Mm. So it's, it's just interesting how our bodies Mine, especially since I started drinking so young, has to relearn what actually tastes good and what is good for me. Yeah, totally. Okay, so I think this is also interesting, Kim. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, but it's all totally related, is you have done some really interesting work in your life. So not just work on yourself, but just what you do actually in the community. And you've done a lot of work with addiction, unhoused individuals and things like that. So I also think this conversation is fascinating because you have all this knowledge and education and like firsthand experience of going into the streets and working with people who have deep traumas, deep addictions. I mean, whether you want to call us, you know, functioning addict people or whatever you want to say, because we're still going to work and getting jobs done and things like that. But I just think there's this whole other realm of who you are that's out in the community, in the trenches. And I want to hear a little bit about that too. How did you even start? I mean, what did that look like being out there with, you know, approaching people who could potentially be dangerous? You know, I mean, you're talking about criminal, like criminal minds. Like this isn't just like, oh, my friend who drinks too much and sometimes gets stupid and punches a wall. Like I'm talking about you have been face to face with a lot of people in the world who have done some really crazy shit. Just get into what it's like or how you even started in on this track. Sure. You want, you want the whole story? I want the I would whole love that. story. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, I mentioned that I started drinking at 13. Also, at age 13, I was sent to the school for modeling, Barbizon. <laughs> yes. Oh, I wanted to do that. I remember the commercial. Yes. So good. And so I would have to go over to San Francisco and get off at the Powell Street BART station and then walk myself up to where the four square... I don't know that the fancy place up yes. Hall Street where the mall is and all the things. Union Square. Yes, Union Square. I'm like the square space. <laughs> that was clear. I got gotcha. you. That was super yeah. clear. Uh, and so on those streets, right now, much more severe. But even back at that time, there was a lot of unsheltered individuals that were living out there. Some of them were around my same age at 13, 14. Some of them were older. A lot of them had the cool jean jacket with the anarchy symbol and all that. And I am a cop's daughter, so. I loved anarchy symbols. (laughs) (laughs) And so on my path and my way to there, I would always stop to talk and wanted to really understand. I just felt like they were so free and they just could live their life very rogue and adventurous and go do whatever they wanted to do without society's control. Right. Um, So from that, I quickly learned that sometimes being unsheltered is better than their home life and the experiences that they were having there with either step parents or actually blood parents making really terrible decisions and and breaking human beings. So I learned that very early on. And as much as I tried to do anything other in a career choice, it continuously went back to working with the unsheltered individuals. And I just adore them. There's so much more than just that homeless person. They have rich stories of survival, of experiences that they have been through. 
overcome and loved ones that they're missing because they've just kind of separated out of their out of their own story right it's really hard to watch your loved one make choices like this that for me i think it's survival choices right and and i'll say it about myself as well that when we choose to use a substance that alters our mind we're doing it because there's a benefit of some sort to ourselves like we're either numb or we're escaping or we're keeping our minds super busy so that we don't have to think about what's going on or what uh, things that we need to help coping with. So I've, I think it's, it's a strength that people find these substances. And then we need to reteach them coping mechanisms that are healthier and not so illegal that will land them incarcerated. And being incarcerated is just this cycle, a revolving door between homelessness and, and the institutions and back because we have criminalized being unsheltered. There's laws against sleeping in a tent. There's laws against sleeping on the floor, urinating outside, right? We have criminalized people who are in need of basic human stuff, right? Our basic needs, food, clothing, and shelter. And if you don't have it, you're a criminal and we're going to we're going to lock you up. We're going to lock you up and we're not going to give you any tools to get sober, which I think is really sad. And I agree with you. Having a father who succumbed to drug addiction, I realized I eventually learned compassion for him after years and doing my own research that, yeah, he was hurting. He had a horrible childhood and he was basically self-medicating and continued to do so into his adult life and then eventually passed away. I just think it's so amazing that you had compassion and curiosity at a young age. I think most people have fear. And I mean, I remember being told as a little girl in San Francisco for the first time, you know, don't look at them, step over them. I wanted to give them my money that I had and my purse and no, no, keep walking was what I was told. Carried that with me for a long time. And it's, it's so compassionate and beautiful that you just innately knew that you wanted to help these people. Yeah. They're kind of my heart. Like, yeah, they are. It's your yeah, calling. It's definitely my my happy place is just sitting with folks and hearing their stories and then just being able to hold it for them in that safe space. I just love it. Mm-hmm. Well, you said the word safe, and I guess that's what always sticks in my mind is there is mental illness a lot of times wrapped up into addiction and some of the people that are on the street are not of sound mind and are not rational. And that's the part that I get really nervous about is where is that line where this conversation is a a safe and healthy one versus like, oh my God, are you going to rob me? Or like, I don't know. That's where my mind goes. And part of it too is I think Mm. also, you know, places were raised as well. I was raised in an area where it could be dangerous, you know, like it was next to a BART station and there was a lot of crime that would happen. And so what triggers in me was never to just go and have this conversation or give my purse up. Honestly, it was more of, I'm going to get my fucking ass robbed or maybe killed or raped or who knows what the hell I got to get out. You know, I got to get out of here, this environment. So I do think it's interesting. And, and this is, I think what fascinates me about the work that you've done in the streets is how do you do that without really having I don't know. Or like, do you know martial arts or something? Like, what, what are you equipped with to go in there and just do this work? I am equipped with what I think is stupidity. Like, mm-hmm. like I have my ignorance is bliss. Right? Ignorance is bliss. I I just grew up with this. I'm gonna be okay. Like, mm. I just didn't see it. I would see it as 
oh my gosh, other people are probably in danger right now. I should go intervene. Wow. But I think it's because I grew up, again, a cop's daughter. So I would see things. I would see him run in mm. to things. There's, there was this time I was in the car with him and we were, we were just driving. I don't even know where we we're going. doesn't matter for the story. But we ended up pulling over to the side. I'm like, oh, why are we stopping? This isn't where we're going. And there was a female deputy and she was having a conversation with somebody that she had just pulled over. And my dad was like, we're just going to watch and make sure, you know, see how the story goes. If she doesn't need my help, she doesn't need my help. But, it, you know, it may take a minute for backup to arrive. And he, the person she was talking to was a big guy. And he kept stepping forward and kept stepping forward. And my dad kept watching and to see. And he's like, she's got it. She's got it. And then he said, nope, she doesn't got it. Wow. And so he got out of the car mm -hmm. and he immediately took the guy to the ground and helped her out. And I, one, respected his response to a female. He was just going to stay to the side. But, you know, there's parts of me where I'm like, should I have been offended? But as a female, no, I want there to be somebody that's keeping an eye out for me as well as letting me kind of handle it until I can't handle it. And so in that, that just sticks out in my brain. And I was definitely not a teenager when I saw that happen. Mm, wow. And I think it just helped put me in that space of, one, you're safe because somebody's going to see you. And two, you go if somebody needs help. You don't just ignore that somebody needs help. And so those are just, I constantly do things. And then at the end, I'm like, hmm, that was probably super unsafe. <laughs> to where I am really not allowed to talk about work at home to my husband. Because oh. he does <laughs> When I'm like, hey, funny story happened today. And he's like, no, mm -mm, not funny. I'm like, dude, totally lived. It's fine. <laughs> I'm here to tell it. I'm here to share it. Why aren't you finding this funny? And he's, nope. But that no. is a very interesting perspective, though. <laughs> that you just shared, which kind of blew my mind a little bit. I mean, your what you saw was a go in and help constantly and trusting that, yes, there are people that are going to have your back somehow. So that was already just ingrained in you from what you saw, uh, what was modeled to you, you know? Yeah. And it was so instinctual of him. I think he was aware that if he went even a little bit sooner, he could have escalated a situation in a direction that I wasn't necessarily going to go in, but then saw that it was going that way and then had to act. I just think that's fascinating. I love that we have people in our community that are out there doing that kind totally. of work. So then after starting like that as a kid and, and not being afraid and really embracing just people, you started doing work where you were in the street with individuals. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I do street outreach. I still do street outreach, even though my program itself is only housing. I still can't help it. Right. If I see somebody out there, I'm going to go chat with them. I'm very visual. So by the time I've approached you, I've already looked at all my safety things on how I keep myself safe and how do I keep the people around me safe. And so I know if it's going to be an appropriate time to go up to you. Right. How how much have you talked to yourself? How how pacing how jittery is your body I've already assessed mm -hmm. that whole situation my stance has everything to do with my approach as well like I'm coming and I'm keeping it an open stance I never come up face to face and and make you feel like I'm an authority kind of try to humble myself down if you're sitting I'm sitting too or I'm crouching and we're having a conversation at, at a very equalizing level I'm not an I'm not an authority figure I'm not an expert on somebody else's life I'm just here to kind of be in your area and see if there's anything that I can offer you right now that's going to help you feel a little bit seen, 
validated as a human being and take care of some basic needs. Because you're working with people who have unfortunately had a lot of trauma. And so there's fear and maybe that's what might cause someone to react if you if you didn't meet them where they are and take your energy down. So you have to have such self-awareness. Yes, and keep your face, right? <laughs> we can't we can't look Right. (laughs) Right. And there's times where I'm like, fix your face, you know, internally so that I'm not inciting anything or I can just easily be like, all right, well, I'm going to, you know, I'll check on you at another day and I'll just walk away or kind of try to pivot the conversation and acknowledge that I'm. I see that I've caused some distress with my question and I didn't mean to. So it's kind of you're trying to stay a step ahead, but you're also in that moment. It's it's a tricky game, but it's something that I do very subconsciously. And then later on, when I have to write a note about it, I'm like, OK, why did I do what wow. I did? It just makes sense. And I just trust my instincts and mm-hmm. tell my staff the same thing. Trust your gut. We'll figure out what was going on for your gut later on but in the moment trust it and get the hell out if you need to get out mm-hmm. we don't need to be like well why do i feel this way <laughs> right now hold on a minute hold on i'm feeling unsafe yeah. can i actually talk to you real quick about this before i go and talk to you about what's going on with you <laughs> as a, there's some things out as women we know we have yeah. we have like the hair do. rises and we just trust that. Get the hell out. <laughs> we do. And so often we talk ourselves out of that voice that creeps up. That's like, you got to get out of here. Right. Um, oh, you're being silly. You're just. Mm-hmm. No, you're not. Listen trust to it. it and get the hell out. Wow. OK, so then when you're in there, what are you offering people? What exactly are you doing? <laughs> are you just Why? like, hey, you want a cup of coffee? <laughs> Have a nice day. Like, what are you doing? Sometimes, sometimes that is just the basic of did you need a cup of coffee today? Like, just because who does it? Like you were saying, who doesn't want a cup of coffee? And that is kind of that equalizer start to a conversation if they'll accept a cup of coffee, right? I'm going to be a grouchy bitch before a cup of coffee. So, hey, man, do you you want a cup of coffee? Like, will that help start your day for you? Other times it's maybe they're not wearing shoes. And I just want to see like, do you want shoes? Like, how, how can we make that happen for you today? Or have you eaten? And then many people have eaten, you know, if they're parked outside of, of a restaurant, they've been handed so much food. But maybe they want to shower. Like, do you need a couple bucks towards your motel room or whatever your your next thing is? Do you need a place to stay? Yeah, I have no problem giving money. And Mm. if they tell me, like, hey, I just want to get a beer. Well, if you're a raging alcoholic and you haven't had one, you're going to die. So I'm going to give you a couple bucks so that you can have a beer. It's not my place to judge your choices that you're making in order to survive and your coping mechanism in this place. And I'm definitely not going to be the person that allows you to seize out and and potentially die. So I'm- I love this so much because I think what's been ingrained in a lot of us is don't ever give money. I pride myself on never giving money. I am like, I will give them my Trader Joe's groceries that was intended for me. I will give them the sandwich from Starbucks or whatever, but I will not give money. And I think it's my own issue with having an, a drug addict father and the resentment like I have enab- that. Like and I don't enabling. want an enable. Yes. Yeah. And so I really love that you're saying this. It's giving me a different perspective that I wouldn't have had. So thank you so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's another story that I had from a woman who loved 
she's just a giver. She's just such a giver. And she called me a few years ago and she's like, I was in the tenderloin and I offered this guy an apple and he said, no, thank you. <laughs> and she's like, what, what, he just want my money and to go get drugs. And I was like, well, you know, if it was a whole apple, it contains a lot of fiber and he doesn't have access to a toilet. So maybe he didn't do that. Also, did mm. he have teeth? Because biting into an mm. apple is extremely difficult for a person without teeth. <laughs> and it, it was just a shift for her perspective mm. of we see things through our own individual lenses and our own experiences yeah. and we make choices. And there's a whole other side that people don't know and they don't maybe want to hear or they've just never been exposed to. So I appreciate that you're hearing what yeah. what I'm saying about individuals. Absolutely. Well, it's, I, I feel like this is such a big mm. Right now, I had one of those aha moments where it's like, it's a lesson in what you just said about the perspective of our own lens. And just in general, in relationships as a whole, it doesn't matter whether it's your friend or your partner. But if we enter the world thinking about other people's needs versus our own and what we think everybody else needs, how much more effective could our whole just world be. I mean, if I come in and I'm, like you said, offering you an apple, you have no teeth to bite it with just because I ate my apple this morning and feel healthy and like, oh, that was on my Mm -hmm. little diet list. You know, I'm not coming from a place of what you really need. You know, maybe if that apple was in a smoothie and I presented it a different way, I don't know. Or like you even said, though, then there's the bathroom issue. I mean, there's so many things, though, that I feel like even in general, when you're looking at how you're approaching your children or other people in the world, we always come from this place of what we think is best for everyone. You know, just because it's good for me, it must be good for everyone else. And I'm hearing such a bigger message that is really about what if we operated in really assessing, number one, not even just bulldozing our way into something, but assessing a, a scenario and then looking at what, what the needs really are, right? Not my needs, but the needs of others. Whoa, this is a lot. So the other thing, Kim, I wanted you to talk about is with all that said, you, and forgive me if I don't get the full title right, you can correct me, but you are the director of the Goodness Village, yeah, which is located at Crosswinds Church. So in our town, in, in Livermore. Yeah, in town. So speak a little bit to what that's about and how you got that started. Well, Crosswinds Church was the one that came to me with this idea, which is always just mind blowing to me. The fact that they brought this idea of using tiny homes for unsheltered individuals in the middle of wine country, right next to fancy upper scale shopping is just mind blowing to me every single time that it happens or that I talk about it. But we currently have 28 tiny homes and we use them for our formerly chronically homeless, which are our high level need individuals. They've been um, through incarceration. They're high emergency users. They have to be diagnosed with either a chronic physical disability or a chronic mental health disability or addiction. And typically our folks have at least two of those. Some of our folks have three. And so they need to have 24-hour wraparound supportive services in order to maintain their housing. And so they wouldn't do maybe so well with retaining housing if we put them into an apartment or a shared kind of room and board environment because they have been unsheltered for a significant amount of time, have some major trust issues, and they just need that extra support around them. 
We've been open since 2021. 64% of our folks are still with us that joined us originally, which is huge with that population because they typically I hate the word fail. Our system was not created Transition. for individuals <laughs> like this. They go through a lot of transitions. They do, yeah. We, there, and there's not a lot of housing. I was just writing a paper. The, the United States has a deficit of 7 million homes right now. That is ridiculous. And we have a problem, right? So we're bringing people in to shelters or 18-month programs, but there's nowhere for them to go. And so they return to the streets and then they're told that they failed because they didn't secure housing. There's no housing for them to have secured. So they didn't fail. And telling people that their failures over and over again really affects them for their next opportunity. So for the first part of moving in with us, we are working on repairing relationships with nonprofits. That's our basic work in the very beginning of regaining their trust and showing up for them in a way that other people haven't. And then allowing them to rest and eat and stabilize before we go into goal planning, which is also different. Usually you enter a program and we need to talk that very day. What are your goals? You don't know your goals. You've been in survival mode forever. You mm-hmm. haven't slept. Your goal is to sleep and eat. Sometimes they tell me my goal is to die here. And I'm like, mm-hmm. mm, well, I think we can get a little more creative with that. I mean, gonna- <laughs> love it. Um, but we're going to write that as your goal is to retain housing here and then When you've slept, ate, and feel like you can trust me a little bit more, we'll explore further as to what does that actually look like. And also, if you do want to die here, what does that look like? Like, who's going to be here with you? So are we talking about family reunification? Are we talking about maybe finding a loved one for the time that you're here? Like, How do you want to live before you die? And also, when you do die, what do you want your memorial to look like? And how do we create that? Because you do have ownership over something. And when we start having those conversations, conversation, we kind of put them back into their own body. Yeah. I was just thinking as you were saying this, you know, if you've been living on the streets for years, you're not having those reflective thoughts. And so to just be in a safe space and have someone kind of asking you those type of questions opens up a whole new way of thinking for them. They haven't been able to experience. They've just been trying to get to their next meal or their next fix. And so they wouldn't be thinking like that. No. No. So we're trying really to give them back control, right? And once you have control, kind of the reason I stopped drinking is to get my own control back so that you can go into your next leg of your life in a different sort of way. So we're intentional. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Other nonprofits, I think, and definitely other housing programs, they're coming in as I'm the best expert. I'm in control. Let me tell you what you're going to do now. And so everything that they've been through has been stripping them of their identity for years. And we're trying to put it back into them so that they make the choices. Mm -hmm. Wow. I'm sure you get some backlash from people (laughs) that are fearful about what this could do to the community. You know, you describe the community and the type of experience, maybe people that live here are expecting to get out of this area and homeless shelter is not one of them. So (laughs) (laughs) true story. But at the same time, what I'm mostly battling is people who say, let's not spend money on on tiny houses. That's a lot of money to provide a house for an individual. Let's move them through. Why aren't you doing, why can't we just set up a bunch of tents for people? Mm. 
and and then we can build a fence around that and we can make that your program and i'm like whoa that's definitely not the plan no not sanitary (laughs) causes a whole lot of other problems not a campsite no we're not that we're about dignified housing and so mostly i'm battling that and also our society really values production and work and the idea of Okay, so you gave them four walls. So when are they going to be working and then go pay for basic market rent and make room for the next person? And we have to explain there's definitely a percentage of people that come through the village that will transition to something different. Are they ever going to pay $2,500 for a studio apartment? No, right? I mean, where where's that coming from in this area? So that's kind of what one of our battles that we're up against. And then really explaining the that the people we have are higher level of need and that they need a permanent place. There's not another place for them to go. So I don't need to move people on. I need more houses to help more people that are needing this level of care. And you have some pretty strict guidelines with the people that you help too. I mean, it's not just any and everybody can come in and move in and live there. There's rules that are enforced. And when you were explaining it to us before, it sounded almost like a parent, parental, but in a loving way. Yeah, that's very true. We're very, very low barrier and really high support. So when we brought folks in, we knew that they were going to have some problems, maybe agreeing with the rules or maybe participating in the rules, right? I can tell you, yeah, I love all these rules and I might still love them while I struggle to adhere to them. And so that doesn't mean that I'm going to return you to homelessness when I knew that you entered the village in that space, right? I knew you were a smoker when I brought you in and then my houses are non-smoking. I'm not sending you back to homelessness with that experience. I am, however, going to continuously encourage you to smoke in the smoking area and let's make good decisions and let's talk about your health and other things like that. So those are, you know, there are rules that are there, but at the same time, I'm not going to send you back to homelessness unless you create an unsafe village for yourself or for somebody else. And even yourself is a little, you know, gray. Everything is gray area. It really depends on are you being blatantly rude because that's just who you're going to be and you don't respect anything in the village? Or are you blatantly rude because you're testing my boundaries and you're testing what happens if I do this? You know, Are you going to assault me if I do this? Will you kick me out if I do this? Will you love all my crummy critters and give me space to work on these? So we're kind of looking at how, the, how do people respond when we do address so that they've done a rule break and do they want to continue to fight to be here or are they going to give us the middle finger and roll on out because yeah because at the same time they can just go I'm not loving any of this anymore and I'm out of here yeah we've had a couple people say whoa this is a lot of people up in my business and I don't want to be here and we're like hey great great time trying it love that you did that let's leave in a really good way because who knows what you're going to want in 10 years you know Mm -hmm. you might say I'm I'm actually into all these rules now as I've had 10 years of other experiences. And so folks have left really incredibly well. They have 
clean to the best of their ability. I mean, if they're 64 years old and they've been unsheltered for 20 years, their their idea of clean is different than my idea of clean, but they gave effort, right? And so no one has left in a bad way that they can't return to the village in the future. So that's a testimony, I think, to my staff. That's not a testimony to four walls. That is, hey, I want to leave this in a respectful manner because the people that have been here, even though I didn't like it, have treated me really well in that space. So I think my staff is amazing. I think the neighbors that live there are amazing. Just really happy with how the village is going. And you, you and your staff might be the first people that have, you know, made them feel human in a long time and treated them well, maybe their entire lives. You just as you're speaking about this, and I think this is what people need to remember when, you know, they're, they're, they're getting upset about like, well, I don't want this near me. These people used to be children yes. that maybe were molested, you know, and their home, like you were saying, was not a safe place to be or they were beaten or verbally abused. Who knows what? Or just ne- neglected, mm-hmm. had no love, had nobody looking out for them. And there's a lot of reasons why people turn to drugs or I love hearing you speak on this because you continue to remind me to just have compassion and remember that we're all humans on this earth experience. And it's like, how can we show up for fellow humans? And you're really showing the fuck up, girl. (laughs) You really are. Thank you. Wow. So we're running out of time, my friends. But yes, I just think him like coming from the background, I mean, even thinking about how you grew up with a cop father, you know, and then just the compassion that you've always had in your heart and this desire to help human beings on the planet. I just think it's so incredible what you're doing. And I'm so blessed to have you sit in this space today and share this with us. And I think if people want to know more about what it is that you're doing, is there a way to kind of get in touch with you or the organization or, you know, because there might be people listening to this that go, how can I help? Like, because I'm even sitting here and I was a little bit resistant to this whole project. I'm going to be honest. But now that I know more about it and I'm hearing it firsthand from you, I'm also hearing what we talked about with the institutional system and how that doesn't work. And so clearly something has to be different. What can we be doing to support this? Because this sounds like it's such a great way to rehabilitate people, to bring them into a community. It's called the, you know, you're calling it a village. They are really getting that sense of belonging. So just for our listeners, and we can also post it, but how can people hear more about this? We just launched a podcast as well. So people can hear stories. It's called The Good Pod. It's everywhere, apparently. I'm not technology. uh, (laughs) On all the platforms. It's on the platforms. And yeah, you can find it. The Good Pod. Also our website, which is gvlivermore.org. And then they can always email info at gvlivermore.org. We're always looking for folks to engage in the village. And what I've explained to individuals is when people volunteer for us and come into the village, you do a therapy that is unattainable by any paid staff member, right? As The neighbors know that we love and we care about them and that we will do anything that they need in order, you know, within reason in order for them to continue on their wellness journey. But when someone comes unpaid to spend time with them and invest in them, that's just a a different, different space of recovery. So we love when people come out to the village. Wow. 
We'll put all this information in the show notes so it's accessible to our listeners. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and were your girls, please share and add a review on iTunes so we can continue to grow our circle. You can also find us on Instagram and TikTok at That's My Girl Podcast.